Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Back on the Grind. Today, I'll be talking with April Hartman, founding member of the folk punk band Apes of the State. The work her and her band has done certainly helped the folk punk community move through some difficult periods, and they're certainly helping to keep it thriving today. In this episode, April talks about how she lived a normal, boring, middle-class childhood until the age of nine, when things began to shift dramatically for her. We discuss how sometimes, in the midst of a horrible or tragic event, you might find relief. April describes what she calls her feelings bank and what happened when she didn't attend to it. She gets emotional when sharing about the most fearful moment in her life, and we talk about how drugs took her to a place that she knew she never wanted to go back to again. And we also get into several aspects of the band. The theme of fear came up quite a bit in this conversation. And for me, that's certainly something that has touched my life as I attempt to rebuild since I've been released from prison. I have to say, April has been one of the few amazing people I befriended after my release. She's offered me advice on projects, let me know I was worthy when I was feeling self-doubt, and she's inspired me to face my own fears. I'm grateful for her honesty and her willingness to share. It was an honor to have her be the first guest for Back on the Grind. Enjoy the interview as we bring you closer to April Hartman of Apes of the State. April, I just want to thank you for coming on to the podcast. I'm excited to have you be the first guest for Back on the Grind. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I'm excited for it. I know originally we had a little concerns with logistics and timing. And, um, you know, I'll just tell you quick, when I had gotten out of prison, uh, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with music. And I decided to do this podcast and start the label and be involved in the music world again. So I I was at home on home confinement. I couldn't leave my house. Technically still serving my sentence in my house. And I was like, you know, I'll start reaching out to some bands. There was probably about five bands I reached out to that day. And it was funny because I had this fear of Apes of the State. So I reached out to like these four bands and I wanted to reach out to you first. But I was like, I didn't know you. Your band is pretty well established in a folk punk scene nowadays. And I, I just had this fear of like reaching out and, and who am I to reach out to you? You know, would you respond or not? And it was the fifth email was going out, which was to you. And I was like, all right, I hit the send button. I was like all nervous. And it was amazing and really inspiring for me and comforting because later that afternoon, we were on the phone together. You were the first person to actually respond to any of the emails I sent out. It's partially why I also wanted you to be the first person on the podcast. But I want to thank you for that because that really helped me start to move forward on this project. And uh, it was encouraging. I'm just a little curious. What was it that you were just so comfortable? I mean, you didn't know me. All, you know, I'm sure you knew some of my history, but like, here's this guy who just gets out of prison, sends you an email, and you're calling him later that day. Can you give me a little story or like information on, on what led you to do that so quickly? I make it a practice to try to answer people as soon as possible, just because like I am a go, go, go kind of person from just doing things with the band. Like if I don't get immediate responses, I get impatient. <laughs> so as a result of that, when people um, email us, no matter what it's about, I try to just get back as quick as I can, even if it's just to say, hey, I can't do this um, just because I hate waiting, especially booking our own shows. I hate waiting a week or two weeks and getting no response. I'd so much rather just somebody say like no right off the bat than wait around to hear a yes or maybe or no. So that's probably why I did that. But the other reason is just because I know the reputation you had with DIY Bandits and like I always admired what you guys did. 
So when you reached out, I was ready to work with you guys because I thought it would be probably something cool. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that. And I respect the fact that you are so willing to reach out to everyone who who reaches out to you. Just for myself, with running the Daily Bandits in the past, you know, I'd get a good amount of emails. I would imagine you get more than I do. And it could be overwhelming. But one thing, you know, I had the same practice as you where sometimes people would send me like three paragraphs and I would read it. I wouldn't have time to write three paragraphs back because I'm getting quite a few of those and, and I'm busy. But even if it's just two sentences and saying like, hey, I like your idea. I think you should go forward with that, you know, and go for it. Something like that you don't realize maybe at the moment, but there's people who last week emailed me and they're like, hey, Pepe, 10 years ago, you responded to an email and it was three sentences and I want to thank you. And this is where I am in my life right now. So I think, you know, taking that time, because it doesn't take a lot of time, you know, you might have 20 emails, but to do a, a two sentence response to them, that can literally mean a lot to somebody else in the world. And I, I think that's awesome that you take the time to do that. Thanks. That makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm hopelessly addicted to my phone, just like a lot of people. So <laughs> if I figure if I'm going to be sitting on my phone all day, I might as well respond to people when they're reaching out. <laughs> your your childhood and your, your earlier life, you know, where did you live, where you grew up, siblings, stuff like that? Sure. So I grew up in Staten Island, New York, famous for the Wu-Tang Clan and the dump. Uh, those are our two claims to fame. Um, pretty normal, boring, like middle class lifestyle, um, except for like the family drama up until I was about nine or 10 years old. Everything was really cool. And then my mom started to spiral mentally around that time, uh, dealing with the death uh, of her mom, coupled with addiction to drugs and alcohol. So she started to kind of have a lot of episodes. Um, I had a sister too. So a lot of uh, my childhood was like me and my sister trying to like be my mom's mom, like trying to take care of mom while she was too drunk or whatever it was. How she old were you when, when you had to take on that role, like you and your sister, how old were you? Starting around like when I was 10 and my sister is two years older than me. So she was about 12. So like this started to obviously become like a, a thing and it culminated in my parents eventually getting divorced. And then like she had visitation um, where we would like go with her for, you know, a day or whatever. And like I did that for many years, I would go hang out with her. But looking back on it now, it was really incredibly like I was putting myself in a dangerous situation because she would get drunk and like drive around. And like, I'm just like, it's like a miracle she didn't wreck a car while I was in it, you know? Um, that's something I didn't realize until way later, but it was also like there was an emotional toll of having to be around my mom and watch her spiral, you know, and watch her just dig deeper into her addiction. And she eventually did pass away when I was 16 years old as a result of that. So then like I had to cope with that. In a way, it's going to sound weird to say this, but at the time it was almost relieving when she passed away because it was like, I don't have to watch her suffer anymore. I don't have to deal with this anymore. It was like, it was really stressful, obviously, for me and my sister. But, um, you know, I mean, it would have been better if she would have got help. I would have liked that a lot more to have a mom. But yeah, what I ended up doing as a result of that is I ended up coping with using drugs and alcohol myself. I started drinking when I was 12 years old. I remember I was like sad one day because all this shit going on. And I was like, well, I could just try this. And I like drank whatever like shit my parents had in the closet. 
And I was like, oh, that feels great. And I'm not sad anymore. And then that just kind of became my default coping mechanism through my teenage years. And like up until I was literally got sober when I was 24, I was just not really dealing with emotions in any constructive way and just like drinking about them or doing drugs about them. So then like any little thing that caused me to have negative emotions or be upset or angry, like I would just turn to that, you know, and then that became like my default until I was 24 years old. So from 10 to 12, you were taking care of your mom. You you said being your mom's mom with your sister. And then at 12, you started drinking yourself. Did you have time to be a child? Do you feel like that was an option or no? In the sense that I got to do bad kid shit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I did, like I skateboarded, I had friends, like I had like a little punk band when I was like 12. Like I had a childhood where I did get to be a child, especially after my mom wasn't in the household with us anymore because my dad, it was just my dad. So that was kind of like fun and, and chaotic when they got divorced because my dad did work all day, right? And then like at a certain point, my grandma or my um, aunt wouldn't come over anymore to babysit us because we were old enough. So that just kind of made it so that like me and my sister could just like run around and be crazy teenagers and like smoke weed in the house and do a bunch of bad kid stuff. So like I had that kind of fun childhood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you mentioned that there was like a sense of relief when your mom passed in a sense, cause you didn't have to watch her spiral, you know, and you thought that might be weird to say, but I, I can say, you know, not with losing anybody, but I definitely had an experience where, you know, I was arrested in 2017 and I was fighting my case for two years until I went away in 2019. But for those two years, like I knew I was going to prison, but I didn't know for how long. So it's like two years of this like unknown. And when the day I got sentenced, I remember my fiance and I, like it was a, a sense of relief. Obviously, that's a dramatic moment, not as dramatic as losing a mother. But like, and it's weird to say that in those moments, though, there could be that feeling of relief. But I could totally relate to that because once I got sentenced, like now I knew what I had to deal with instead of not right. knowing. You're just like... Yeah, you're just like, okay, now I just got to do this and then this is all done. I'm curious if you're willing to go into this. When your mother passed, you said you were just 14? I was 16. 16. And you were already drinking at that time. What was it like for you as a 16-year-old, I mean, it's a young age, to lose somebody? What was that experience like? Did you have support that you felt you needed? Were you isolating yourself? Like, What was the situation like and, and how did you respond? I've always been like the person that had everybody over the house all the time. My house was the party house. Like everybody always hung out at my place. I had like a group of friends that we would get together almost every night and it was always at my place. So like I had that friendship circle I could lean on. It's just the thing is that that friendship circle was largely based on drinking and smoking weed. Mm -hmm. So that's what we did to, to get me through it. And like that, but of course, like I did have family too, like my dad and and like my dad had remarried at that point. So my stepmom and like everybody was kind of trying to be like, maybe you should go into therapy and like do this. But I was just not having any of that. I was totally when I was that age, like, fuck you, mom and dad, parents, anything they suggested was bad in my eyes, Mm -hmm. even if it was ultimately good for me. Like, so I was very resistant to any of that kind of like professional help or anything. Like I was just not going to have it. So I just, I did drugs with my friends about it. Have you, have you gone to therapy since then? 
No, I've never done like therapy per se, except for when I was in rehab. When I was in treatment, uh, I was in there for like 40 days. And then when I got out, I did six months of um, IOP, mm-hmm. like outpatient, intensive outpatient, where I went like a couple times a week. First, it was like daily and then it was a, it like lowered down to like twice a week and then once a week. So I, I guess that counts as therapy. Um, but yeah, I did six months of it, but I haven't gotten, I haven't gone back since then. Yeah, I never have either. And it's, you know, I encourage people around me, uh, my family and, and some close friends to go to therapy. My fiance pointed out recently, she's like, you know, you've never went to therapy, but you've encouraged other people to. And she's like, maybe you should give it a shot. And for some reason, <laughs> I've been a little resistant to it, but I mean, these this past six months or so, like I definitely been like realizing how overwhelmed I feel, and like I've never really struggled with anxiety, but these past few months, like I've felt it, and it's it's interesting to me because I had this idea in my head that if I'm going to go to prison and get out of prison, like if I can deal with several years of prison, like nothing's going to bother me after that. But that's mm-hmm. very far from the truth. But uh, it is something that I promised my fiance this month that actually I'd find a therapist, so I got to get on that. I always like joke that writing songs is cheaper than Mm -hmm. going to therapy. So that's why I do. Essentially, the band is just like my therapy that I do publicly. (laughs) I want to get into that then. Let's let's transition to the band. You and I talked in the past and you had mentioned a story, which I believe was about your first tour with Mm -hmm. Dan, which I thought was kind of interesting. And there was a moment where you realized the band was something you wanted to like pursue as something that's a major part of your life. Do you mind like relating or retelling that story? Yeah. So we did like our first ever tour. I had just gotten fired from like this job. I was on unemployment. So I was like, all right, I'm getting paid anyway. We're good. Like got the money for the rent at home. And we did this like 10 date tour. That was so chaotic. We drove from Pennsylvania all the way to Los Angeles and then all the way back in 10 days. We were driving like 12 hours every day. We would like drive 12 hours, play a show, drive 12 hours. It was so chaotic. But like we saw just like a little glimpse of the DIY scene in all of these cool places everywhere we went, like everywhere, new place. We're a brand new band. We had never played a show outside of Pennsylvania at that point. And everywhere we went, there was 10 to 20 kids that were just so welcoming, uh, ready to, to like welcome us with open arms and just throw in a kick-ass show for us even if it was only like 10 people like still that was so cool back then we saw the rocky mountains and like moab and all these awesome places like just such gorgeous nature that the united states has to offer and it was just condensed within this like 10-day tour and it was so awesome and so exhausting and then it was just over and then me and dan both got home and i dropped him off at his house and i went back to mine and then i was just like laying in bed and i was like well I want to do that again. (laughs) Also, like, this sucks. This sucks being back here. Let's go do that again. And then, like, Dan called me on the phone and he was like, yo, I'm having, like, a mental breakdown. Basically, he was just like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Like, his dad had immediately called him and was like, you need to get back to work. And he was just like, I'm having, like, a crisis and I don't want to do that. I don't want to go back to work. I don't want to, like sit in this town and rot when there's so much cool shit going on outside of here. And we both were like, yeah, I guess we got to, we, we got to book the next tour then. And we just like, I literally the next day I started booking the next tour um, for like the next month. 
after that. And like, we got, we got back to it to get back on the road. So you booked that second tour and how was the response with that tour? Did that like reassure you and, and let you see that what you experienced the first time was going to continue to happen? Yeah. I mean, like we, I, do you know, Eric fun? Have you ever heard the name Eric yeah. fun? Yeah. Eric is, he, Eric's awesome. And like, I, we, we actually went on like a tour with him. That was the next tour that we did. What we actually did was we didn't really uh, leave Pennsylvania too much. We kind of like used my house as a launch pad. And this is something I still do a lot with fans that come visit me today is like we go play New York or we go play Jersey and we go play Philly and we, we play a bunch of shows, DC even. And like they're all within two, three hours of my house. So we kind of did that. And yeah, like we had a great time. I ended up, we played Baltimore and I ended up meeting my uh, bandmate Max at that show who ended up being in the band years later, but they were at that Baltimore show and they were like in active addiction at the time. So that was just like an interesting uh, tidbit that happened. But yeah, we were, me and Dan were just like, we just got to do this. Even if like, you know, all the shows weren't good. They're never all good. Like some of them were fucking terrible, but we were like, we believed in the songs more important than anything. We believed in the songs and we believed in the potential for them to reach people and to resonate. And we were just like, all we got to do is just get them in front of people. So we wanted to just keep working at that and just like keep making it happen, keep playing shows. Yeah. Just push and push as much as we could. What year was this? This was like March, April, 2016. Looking back, like, you know, from someone like myself, I've been involved with the folk punk uh, scene since like 2003, probably. Uh, 2016, I mean, that was kind of a pivotal year in the folk punk world. Um, right. Yeah. And, and a lot of us who been around were like questioning what was going to happen. Would it even continue? I mean, you know, I myself, uh, decided that I was going to kind of quit doing stuff with the DIY bandits that year. Um, we lost Eric Peterson, uh, Pat came out and said he wasn't going to do music anymore. And then we had the big mess with Planet X Records, uh, 2016, 2017, which kind of, you know, ended that whole area of the folk punk world. So it's an interesting time. Like a lot of the stuff was seemed to have been uh, falling apart or, you know, willingly people willingly stepping away. And, and then here you are uh, having this belief and this hope, as you said, in these songs and going forward at like, such a time that was uh, things seem so uncertain. It's a, it's interesting. I'm it's kind of fascinating to realize like the time period that you were starting at. Right. Like I, um, I, I, I often come across people like uh, online, like the haters of folk punk will be like, folk punk is dead. It died in 2016 or 20, whenever year, like, you know, picks dissolved and, and uh, Eric died and Pat quit. Like, and yeah, it did all happen in a mm -hmm. short period of time. So like, they'll be like, it's dead now. And I'm like, that's cool. But my whole folk punk career has been post that. I didn't even like, I wasn't even involved in the scene at all. I've never been to Pix Fest. I did get to see Pat play one time, which I'm really grateful for at a church basement in Kensington, uh, West Kensington, Philly during a snowstorm in 2015 on his last solo tour. So like I got, I got to see him. I never got to see Eric Peterson. Um, I wish I had. He actually passed away while we were on like our third tour, like the first like real big U.S. tour that Apes of the State did. We were uh, away in the summer and uh, I think he had passed away in like July of 2016, if I'm not wrong. And that's we were away on that tour when that happened. 
I mean, like I said, because I wasn't involved in that scene at all. I didn't really think, I mean, of course I thought, you know, well, that sucks of Pat retiring. And I thought, you know, it was devastating when Eric died, but because I wasn't involved in the pick scene or anything, any scene really at all pre that happening, I didn't think too much of it. I was just like, well, I'm just going to keep playing songs and putting music out because this is what I want to do. No, I'm glad you did. I mean, when I look at uh, what's going on now in, in the, the folk punk scene, like I've been pretty detached from it for several years. I mean, partially because I was in prison, but before that, like like I said, in 2016, I was kind of deciding to not be as active anymore. I'm not proud to say, but a large reason of that was because I was going to go and just like, or I did go and sell marijuana like full time. Uh, that kind of became a really big thing. I mean, it got in a sense, out of control. So I was like focusing on that and I wasn't, you know, as aware and haven't been as aware of uh, the folk punk community for about five years or, or more now. But I remember I was in prison and I, I was getting letters from people. This is really what kind of brought me back to the folk punk world because I thought I was done. Like when I went and got locked up, I, I was told myself I was not going to work with music anymore. But when I was in there, so many people started reaching out from the folk punk community. Uh, you know, a lot of people thanking me for my role in things, people thanking me for the positive uh, messages they got from me, whether it was letters or emails and things over the years. But I've got, I got several letters from people who mentioned you actually, because I was locked up during the pandemic and people had written to me about how you were performing, I think on zoom, uh, most of the Wingnut dishwashers union album, so it was really cool for me. And I was like, you know, I, we've not spoken and I knew little of your music at that time. Uh, we had a, we have a mutual friend, uh, rapper, Polly Fink, who mentioned your band to me, but it was like at a time when I was dealing with my case and I just didn't have the capacity to like sit down and like take in what you were doing at the time. So I might've heard like one song, you know, like I said, I was fighting my case. So it was, it was interesting for me to be in prison. And then you came up multiple times through letters people are writing me. You know, I remember sitting there deciding, like, I was going to reach out to you when I got out. And like I said, I had this, like, fear of doing that first day when I sent that email to you. But I think when I when I look what's going on, like, you, you sort of, as a band, like, in a lot of ways, remind me of wing a dishwashers union in a sense not like not necessarily like just music wise but like what you're doing like you kind of have like when i think of who's diy your band comes to mind like you kind of hold that down and, and not that that has to be the way we do everything right it doesn't but i think like you definitely like represent that quite a bit in the community you know i certainly respect that Heck yeah. It's funny that you were like nervous to email me. I'm thinking back on now because like I remember years and years ago when I was first putting out this city and I was shopping for like I was like actually back then trying to like get attention of labels or press or like I didn't know what I was doing. I was like, I'm going to put this album out, but I don't know how to do that. So like I'm just going to do what I think people do when they put albums out. I'm going to like look at labels and somebody had mentioned DIY Bandit's to me at some point. So I looked y'all up and, um, I don't think I ended up messaging you. I think maybe there might've been a thing on the band camp at the time that said, we're not taking submissions. Is that something that you might've had up there? There might've been something about, we're not doing like, we're not being as active currently. Right. Yeah. Right. It was like something. So I didn't end up reaching out and that's so funny. Um, 
And then like after like that didn't nothing came of any of that endeavor of me trying to find a label anything. Mm -hmm. Of course, because like, why would they care about a band that had no following? And it was our first record. But like after that, and then we put the album out and then we built some fans like I realized that that we maybe got a couple articles written out written about us during that time when I was like looking for press. But it didn't really make a big difference in people listening to our music. Like I could see on the Bandcamp stats that it didn't really get many clicks brought over or whatever. So I was like, after that point, I kind of adopted a policy where like if like these people I admire, like DIY bandits or whoever else, like these PR people or these news people that I want to write about Apes of the State, if they see what we're doing and they like it, they're going to reach out to me and they're going to they're going to want to talk to me. So I'm not, I don't need to spend all this time sitting here, sending mass emails out, trying to get attention because if we just focus on what we're doing, we build connections with people and build a fan base. And most importantly, just dedicate all our time to doing that. The other stuff will come eventually. And it's funny because like, that's exactly what happened. It did. You guys found us. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. As far as labels go, and I have to say like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Like honestly, like I don't know how to run a label. We probably were the least successful label in a lot of ways, but in essence, I think that's partly as ironic as it sounds. That's kind of what led to our success. That there was something. I mean, genuine. that should be like if you're a DIY label, you should be pretty unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. Like you know what I'm saying? Because that means you're probably giving most of the money back to the artists. Yeah part of being a label that generates money and is successful is like ripping people off, which you don't seem cool with doing, which is like exactly why you shouldn't and should run a label. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. DIY bandits, honestly, we never turned a profit until I got locked up. Ironically, you know, the benefits that were put out for me, you know, which I'm so grateful to Pat for, but that was really the first time we turned a profit. So we kind of talked about fear and you submitted a, a track for this project as well, which kind of deals with that theme as well. And it's something I'm personally dealing with like quite a bit. Like I'm pretty nervous about starting, you know, a coffee roasting company and like starting a podcast and, and starting a new label. You know, I'm getting married in a couple months. Like, I don't know, there's a lot of things that I'm dealing with that I realize are are fear. I'm wondering if there's been a moment in your life where you certainly realized like you had a a fear come up that you had to deal with yeah the biggest moment that comes to mind is the day leading up to when i decided to go to rehab in um 2014 this is all summarized pretty well in one of my songs timeline on um this city but like going back to like before that like about a year before that i was gonna graduate from college and i just remember sitting on like um in my living room like thinking about, you know, up until that point in life, I had been told where to be at certain times of the day for every day. Like, you know, when you're in a school, when you're in a school structure and you're in a college structure, it's like everything's laid out for you on a schedule. You have to do X, Y, Z, and then that's it. That's your life. Right. But I realized when I was going to graduate, that wouldn't be there anymore. And I just would be on my own and I had to decide what to do. And I didn't know what to do. Like, I had no idea what the fuck I wanted to do. I had spent five years getting a degree in a field that I didn't really feel passionate about and didn't know if I wanted to do um, that kind of work. And I just like had a mental breakdown about it. And then I proceeded to graduate anyway. 
and start working in my field, um, ultimately becoming super miserable and spiraling into me needing to get sober and go to rehab when I was 24, just a year later. That day that I decided to go into rehab, I just remember being so terrified to live without drugs because I knew that like it had caught up to me and I like to think of it like a bank when you like I was saying earlier with using drugs to like cope with my emotions when I was a teenager up until that point when I was 24 like what happens when you do that I like to refer to it as a bank because you put the feelings in and then they gain interest I felt like at that point I had just been putting my feelings in the feelings bank and drinking to avoid dealing with anything, avoid withdrawing any of it. And then it gained interest and it was all like, it was all starting to catch up. I just knew that it wasn't working. The doing drugs thing wasn't working. All I had done up until that point in my life was drink and do drugs and I was still me and I still had those feelings. I realized that day that no matter how many drugs I did, I would still be me at the end of the day. And like that scared me so much that I wanted to either kill myself or I was like the only other option is to try not doing drugs because I don't know what that's like. I've never tried it yet. So I should probably try that first before doing the other thing. But still, if it doesn't work, I could always just kill myself. That was like my thought. Um, and yeah, I was fucking terrified because I it was a completely new life for me, um, coping with things sober. Like I was the kind of person that like, I was like one drug or another all day, every day. Like I was drinking every night. I was smoking weed all day, every day. And then when I started, you know, using opiates, it was like, then I was on that all day, every day. Like there just wasn't a sober moment. I feared that I feared a sober moment because in those sober moments, like all those feelings that I put in the bank would catch up. Yeah, that's what, so I was listening to you talk and, and what I'm hearing you say is that you were just building up these feelings in, in this bank, right? This savings account. And that if the substances were removed, all those feelings would be withdrawn. They'd be pouring out. I mean, obviously that's a difficult thing when you have a large amount of feelings that were stored up and not dealt with. So when you let them out, though, what was it that you were so scared might happen? It just, like, made me, like, feel so anxious and chaotic that, like, I would do rash things to avoid feeling that way. Like, like self-destructive behaviors. Like, I, I was just talking to you before we started recording about this dog I'm watching right now. I'm, I'm a dog sitter as, like, part-time as a job. And this dog I'm watching has separation anxiety. So when she's left alone... She does like she acts out just out of pure fear. Like it's not anything rational. It's it's just fear driven behavior. When she feels that way, she can just she destroyed the car seat in my car. She decided to eat it. But like she could really injure herself in those moments. It's destructive. Even if you don't comprehend what's happening in the moment, like in the moment, she doesn't understand that she could hurt herself when she's doing what she's doing. It's just that like she can't deal with the emotion, the overwhelming emotion she's feeling in any other way. And like that's how I would feel like when I would try to not drink or not smoke or whatever it was, I would get this overwhelming anxiety that would lead me to do like irrational things. I would be like, I need to like 
even something benign, like I need to shave my head today, or like, I need to like go hook up with this person, just like all this crazy stuff. Like I would just act out in ways that would ultimately be not beneficial to my well-being because then I would create more problems for myself. I would be like, oh, I need to like go hook up with this person. And then it would cause like a bunch of drama. And then I would be like, oh, I don't want to deal with this drama. So I'm going to like drink. And it just like it became like the self-perpetuating like cycle of just doing stupid shit as a result of my addiction and then coping with that stupid shit by doing more addiction and stupid shit. It's, you know. (laughs) Tell me a little bit about the day that you decided I'm not going to shave my head. I'm not going to go hook up with this person. I'm not going to go get drunk. I'm not going to go use. I'm going to go to rehab. Like what was going on that day? What was going through your mind? How did you feel? Where were you? I was, I'm always been like really social, even like when I was in my drug, my active drug addiction, I wasn't really like a loner user. I didn't like isolate. I just, I was the kind of person that I was like, I had to have people around me at all times. So probably because I didn't like being alone with my thoughts. So um, I, w- I had a lot of friends in college. We actually had a party. I was living with my sister at the time. And it was like, I think it was like Memorial Day weekend. So we had they, my sister had a party for Memorial Day. And like a lot of my friends came from college. But I like I, I just remember feeling like I had like there's all these people at my house. But I felt so alone anyway. And like, I just locked myself in my room and I kept doing drugs. I was like doing a bunch of Coke and I was doing a bunch of ketamine. You're in your room doing a bunch of drugs and then there's a friend gathering going on like right outside. Yeah, like there's like a whole party going Mm -hmm. on outside with all my friends. I couldn't, anytime I was out with them trying to be there and have a good time, I like felt so alone still that like, I was like, I just need to go in my room and do a bunch of drugs, I guess. And like that whole day went by. And then eventually everybody left. And then like the next morning, I was just like kind of sitting there and just like hating, you know, that feeling. Because like I said, I've always been a really social person. Like that didn't make any sense to me to not be able to be in a room of my, with my friends and still feel like I was alone. So like I knew something wasn't working. And I texted my sister Like, she was still asleep, but I texted her, like, hey, come talk to me as soon as you wake up in the morning. And uh, she got up and came in, and I was just like, hey, I need to go to rehab. Like, I just got to go. And then you went? Like, now. (laughs) Yeah, I went that day. Like, she she made the phone calls and, um, like, found me someplace that would take me right away, and we just went. No questions asked. And how long have you been sober now? Coming up on June 2nd, so from 2014, how many years is that? Am I coming up on eight or am I coming up on nine? Coming up on nine? Yeah, so in, in, in June, it'll be nine years. Yeah. It feels so weird to say that because after the first year, it just flew by. The first year was the hardest. Mm-hmm. I was like counting those days, but I stayed sober from the moment I went to rehab. I didn't ever do drugs again. All I knew is that I just never wanted to feel like that ever again in my life. Mm -hmm. And like, I knew what got me to that point was drugs. So I was like, if I just never do that again, I won't ever have to feel like that. And I knew that like, if I did everything they told me to do when I was in rehab, like I did all the therapy, I took advantage of every single program that they offered. I took every piece of advice 
even if I didn't want to do it, I just fucking did it. Cause I was like, well, my shitty ass ideas got me where I was and I don't ever want to feel that way again. That's quite a journey. I mean, it's hard for me to even comprehend, you know, I didn't struggle with addiction in that way, uh, with, with alcohol or other drugs. I mean, I can't fathom being at that point where you're in your room with your friends out there and, and you're just using, you know, whatever drugs you have and, and not participating. So I'm curious, though, now that you're sober, I mean, you know, we all feel lonely whether we're using or not. So what happens nowadays? Like, you know, maybe you don't feel as lonely as you did. I don't know. But what are, are there moments when you feel lonely nowadays? And, and how do you respond differently if that's the case? In like my recovery, in early recovery, I definitely surrounded myself with people a lot because I was like still working through, like I was saying that like being alone with my thoughts was scary. And so in early recovery, I, when I was still working through some shit, I did surround myself with a lot of people and I still was like the kind of person that had to be around a lot of people all the time. But like now, like years later, I've found that like I'm actually a lot less extroverted than I thought I was. Like I thought I was like really social and really extroverted, but I think it just I'm seeing now that it turns out that I think I was just not okay with being alone because I didn't want to be alone with my thoughts and my emotions. And like I'm so much more chill with that now. Like I could sit alone and just chill work on some stuff, play some songs, like whatever it is. I'm, I'm, I'm cool with being alone now, which is definitely like, it's a virtue that I found in recovery, mm -hmm. you know, being, being okay with being alone. Do you think a part of that is because you finally opened up that emotional bank account? Oh yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I was definitely like running from those solitary moments because I didn't want to have to think about any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. I had a similar experience with prison. I mean, that's a, uh... It's an interesting place because you're surrounded by so many people, but you feel more alone than you ever have. And it's such a bizarre dichotomy. But um, you definitely have to confront a lot in situations like that. And it's so relieving once you get through the fear of opening up that emotional bank account. But the relief, like it's such a weight off your shoulders, you know, once you can get to that point. I do believe if you're able to be alone with yourself, I think that's a great thing for other people because the relationship you have with other people is never going to exceed the relationship you have with yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, and if, if you can't have a relationship with yourself that's somewhat healthy and thriving, it's going to be really hard to do that with other people. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I appreciate you sharing the story. I mean, I know it's difficult. I know... It was emotional. You know, you had some tears coming down your eyes. You you definitely have an inspiring story that I hope other people can hear and understand that they can get through difficult situations. You know, I kind of laugh at myself because like I have these fears of things that I'm dealing with now and they seem so simple compared to what you just described. You know, and it's like, <laughs> I'm afraid to send an email, you know, I'm like, <laughs> so it kind of gives me some perspective and I appreciate that. I mean, but that's also what inspired um, me like to pursue my life so differently once I got sober, because I remember be, like sitting in rehab and thinking this is the hardest fucking thing I've ever done in my life. But I was also so afraid to do that and I was doing it. 
by the time I got out of rehab, I was like, I've actually been sober for 30 days. Like I did it. And that was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. So like anything from this point forward should be easy. That's what I told myself. So like when I started the band and I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm like, this is going to be my, my passion and my career. It seemed easy. Like it seemed like an easy choice to make because I had already done that, you know, and that was the hardest thing. Before we close out, I'm curious to ask about your relationship with Dan, who is also in the band. Part of the reason I ask that is, you know, if things go well with what I'm trying to do with starting like a coffee roasting company, uh, eventually I'd love to open up a cafe and a venue. But my fiance and I, you know, we talk about her eventually being able to quit her job and come work in the same place as me. And you kind of always hear like, don't be in a relationship with someone who's working with you or in the band, like what is it like to have someone who's a partner and a bandmate? Yeah. Being in a band with Dan is funny. When we first started the band, we weren't dating, but we were dating shortly after that because Dan, Dan quickly became my best friend really fast when we started making music together and touring and doing all that stuff. And like, it just became one of those things where you naturally like went from being best friends with somebody to dating your best friend because I was like this is somebody I could be around all the time <laughs> you know that's kind of what it comes down to when you fall in love with somebody you're like this is somebody I could see myself around all the time they're not annoying to me uh etc I actually enjoy being around them so like we never like thought too much about it at first we just kind of went with it I'd be lying if I would if I would say it hasn't had its ups and downs over the years. Like it has its advantages and disadvantages. One of the advantages is that sometimes me and Dan could like do a tour just us as a duo. And like it's like just going on vacation with my boyfriend and we could play shows and it's fun. But we have to always consider the other members of the band. Like if something's going on with a band that's annoying me and Dan, of course it could like lead to us starting to get into an argument about that. So like we kind of have this rule we've established that like we don't discuss things that are going on with the band unless the band is there, like the whole band. That's kind of our rule just to keep it out of our relationship, out of like affecting our relationship in any way, because otherwise like, we would definitely argue about it a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Maybe I'll have to have you back on to give me an episode of relationship advice if I end up working with my fiance in the future. <laughs> yeah. Well, April, I thank you for responding to that email I sent you back then and calling me later that day. It definitely encouraged me to do what I'm doing now. And then I thank you for being so open and honest on here. Hearing your story and your honesty, uh, I, I'm grateful for that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to be part of it and to hear everybody else's interviews and songs. Do you have any uh, closing remarks about the band? Anything in the works? New music? Anything going on? Yeah, so we're like we're right now we're making up tours we should have done in 2020. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we're um, we're doing our West Coast tour. By the time this podcast is out, we'll have done, been finished that. But uh, in May, we're going to be touring the Midwest so that we could go play Moonrunners Fest. Uh, so those shows will be coming up. Check out those dates. Then we're going to be laying low and recording, hopefully, this year. So 
look out for a new Apes of the State album coming out sometime in the end of 2023 or 2024. Thematically, it's a lot of heavy shit. <laughs> it's a little uh, different than anything I think we've ever put out. The songs are like, they're just different. But like my life is different now than it was when I wrote our first two albums. So like our songs are going to be different, you know? And yeah. Awesome. And we'll link in the show notes where people can find the band. Uh, we'll have your website and social media up there if people are interested. Cool. All right, April. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so glad I had the chance to sit down with April and have this conversation. The things we talked about certainly hit home for me in a lot of areas. But specifically, I really enjoyed hearing her talk about how when she would have overwhelming fear and anxiety and she didn't want to deal with it, she would kind of just jump into these rash behaviors, self-destructive behaviors. She'd shave her head. She'd hook up with some random person. She'd use drugs. And all of this just caused more problems for her. And she didn't want to deal with those additional problems, so she jumped right back into more irrational behaviors and using. I personally haven't struggled with substance abuse, but I can certainly relate to this behavior. I get a lot of anxiety and fear about the projects I'm facing. I'm kind of a dreamer. I have this ability to come up with these ideas, and I can imagine them in the end and how they look. But I don't know the steps to get there. So when I have to like sit down and actually do the work to take those steps, that's when fear and anxiety show up for me. And for me, I don't turn to substances, but my irrational behaviors, my behaviors that aren't helpful often is procrastination. It comes time to do the work and I feel the anxiety. I feel fear. And instead of feeling that, I go turn on Netflix for today or I go out and take a hike in the woods instead of doing the things I have to do. But that in turn just means everything that has to get done just builds up closer and closer to the deadline, which in turn causes more problems, just like April had when she wasn't dealing with the fear and anxiety and feelings that she was having. But like April pointed out, there is something that we could do. You know, we didn't talk too deeply about this, but April did turn to someone for help. She turned to her sister and she let her sister know she needed to do something. And I found myself in a very similar position. I'm trying to do this podcast. I'm trying to start the record label. I'm trying to start this coffee roasting company and I have a bunch of other things going on. And I just kept procrastinating because I didn't know the steps to take and it caused a lot of fear that I didn't want to face. So I ended up reaching out to Folk Punk Dad, see if he'd be interested in helping me out with these projects if he'd want to join me as a co-host on here. And he did. And now you're actually listening to us, largely because he helped me overcome some of that uh, fear and procrastination. So I think it's really important that when we're in those moments, we do reach out for help, that we do reach out and let people know, you know what, I can't necessarily do this on my own right now. So I'm glad I reached out to Folk Punk Dad. I'm glad April reached out to her sister. I think some awesome projects are to come with this podcast. And I think April has already shown us the amazing projects that she's pulled off since she's got sober. So on that note, I hope you stick around. You check out the next episode. Uh, my co-host, Folk Punk Dad, and I will kind of dive deeper into fear. Uh, Folk Punk Dad helps me kind of sort through 
my response to fear and when fear shows up as we discuss that in, in some detail. And you know what? I'll say I can use some help from all of you too. If you enjoyed this interview, do me a favor. I would love for you to leave a review. If you can leave us some stars and write a review on whatever platform you listen on. And if you could tell three friends to check out the podcast, that would mean so much to us. I would be super excited. And if you have any questions or if there's something that you want to have us talk about on the podcast, feel free to reach out. You can email us at podcast at backinthegrindrecords.com. And we hope to hear from you soon.